privilege now to open God's Word with you. And our scripture lesson uh, this morning is going to be Jonah chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 10. Uh, if you have something to follow along, you can open there. Jonah chapter 3, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 10. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, you know, uh, often when, when two people are in love, they will often go to great lengths, do crazy things to demonstrate their love for one another, especially early on in the relationship, we would say. We have uh, serenades outside of bedroom windows. We have the iconic image of John Cusack holding the boombox over his head in the 1989 film, Say Anything. Uh, for me, it was music as well. When, when I wanted to propose to my wife, I wanted to do it through a song that I wrote. This is an advantage us musicians have over you non-musician people. Muggles, we call you. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> So we had a, I wanted to propose through this song, and by the way, my co-conspirator in this plan was none other than David Ridenour. Yes. By the way, without David, I probably would not have graduated seminary. I definitely would have not have pulled off this proposal. <laughs> so since David and I had access to uh, the seminary chapel with all the uh, fancy, nice sound equipment in there, we got in there one afternoon. And we've recorded this song uh, together, me on guitar and vocals, David on piano. And then we took it and we went to David's apartment and he added orchestral strings on it via his keyboard. And we mixed this thing down and burnt it to a CD. Remember those things? (laughs) We burnt it to a CD and I took that CD with me to Charleston, South Carolina, where I put it in a boombox on the rooftop restaurant of of this downtown restaurant in Charleston, South Carolina, where later... My wife and I danced to the song that I wrote and recorded, and then I got down on one knee and asked her to be my wife. Like, very romantic, right? I'm still riding the wave of that mojo (laughs) 16 years later. (laughs) If April were here right now, she would say, what happened? (laughs) Where'd that romantic guy go? Fair enough. 
But back then, I, I wanted to go all out. I wanted to, to go to great lengths to demonstrate my love uh, for April. I tell you that story because I think that's exactly what God is doing here in Jonah chapter 3. You might be wondering, why in the world are we plopping down in this random chapter in the middle of the book of Jonah in the Old Testament? Well, number one, I got to choose, and I like this text. <laughs> but it means a lot to me, and it's meant especially a lot to me since moving to Madison. Because in this text, in this chapter, you're going to see God going to great lengths, all out to demonstrate his love, actually for everyone in this story, for his wayward prophet, for Jonah, and for the wayward Ninevites, these enemies of God who were notorious for their violence and their wickedness. This is, guys, this is what the book of Jonah is about. It's, it's like this magnifying glass onto things God really wants his people to see, which is the compassionate heart of God and the compassionate mission of God's people in the world. That's what Jonah's about. And here in Jonah 3, God is pulling out all the stops. And he's going to great lengths to demonstrate his compassion. And actually, friends, <laughs> he's even willing to make you uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortably, uncomfortable theologically in order to demonstrate his compassion. Because in verse 10, it literally says that God changed his mind. And Orthodox Christians know that God is not supposed to change his mind. God is willing to even border on heresy in order to demonstrate his love. It makes us uncomfortable. And I've noticed that oftentimes God's radical grace can make us uncomfortable. Okay, so we'll get to the part about God changing his mind. But there, overall, I want you to see three things from this text about the links, the great links God is willing to go to demonstrate his love for the world. I want you to see grace for a broken prophet, grace for a broken city, and finally, grace through a broken promise. So grace for a broken prophet, for a broken city, and then through a broken promise. Number one, grace for a broken prophet. This is Jonah. In verse one, it said, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Brothers and sisters, we should not overlook the astounding grace in those three words. A second time. Because if you know the story, the word of the Lord had came to Jonah the first time. And he said, arise and go to Nineveh. And Jonah arose and went in the exact opposite direction towards the city of Tarshish. Approximately 2,000 miles in the opposite direction. This could not be a mistake. <laughs> As prophets are supposed to obey the word of the Lord. But so far, Jonah is the only person in this entire story that is disobeying the word of the Lord. Jonah gets on a ship to run from God, and even the pagan sailors are obeying the word of the Lord, but not Jonah. God sends a storm to chase after Jonah, and the storm obeys the word of the Lord, but not Jonah. After Jonah gets tossed overboard into the sea, God sends a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That's what we all know about the story of Jonah. And the fish obeys the word of the Lord, but not Jonah. You see what's going on? Everything in this story, everyone and everything is obeying the word of the Lord except for God's prophet. <laughs> the very one who's supposed to obey the word of the Lord. We would have to consider Jonah as a prophet a failure. 
God gives him a task, and he runs in the opposite direction, and he gets caught doing it, right? Red-handed. Can you imagine the shame that Jonah is feeling? I certainly can. When I was a kid, there was this four-lane highway that bordered our neighborhood that I was not allowed to cross on my bike. And one day I decided, I'm going to cross it anyway. And there I was, riding free, feeling dangerous, (laughs) until I rounded the next corner. And what did I see but my minivan with both my parents in it as we passed each other on the highway. Shame. (laughs) There were no excuses. I don't know how I ended up here. There's no way. Shame. Brothers and sisters, this is Jonah. And if it were you and I, we would have written Jonah off. We would have said, Jonah, you had one job. One job. I gave you one job and you blew it. Surely I can find a better prophet somewhere in my kingdom. Or in fact, you know what? I'll just be done with humans. I'll just do it myself. Jonah, you're fired. Take off, right? But thankfully, friends, you and I are not God. Because God pursues after Jonah. He chases him to the other side of the world. He pursues him through a storm. He rescues him from drowning by the fish. And he gets Jonah back to dry ground. And he comes to him a second time and says, Jonah... I want you, nobody else, you to go to Nineveh. I want to use you for my kingdom's sake. Brothers and sisters, this is grace for a broken prophet. Extraordinary measures to not let Jonah go his own way. To not let Jonah drown in the sea. God literally resurrects Jonah from death and gives him a second chance to obey the word of the Lord Because in this, Jonah is the object of God's great compassion. And God will not stop until Jonah is also a vehicle of that compassion to the world, to the Ninevites. Uh, This is what Tim Keller, you guys know who Tim Keller is? You heard of him? Okay, that's good. (laughs) This is what Tim Keller calls the Jonah principle. I love this. It says the Jonah principle says that because God is such a God of radical grace, even failure and brokenness are not obstacles to your usefulness to God. Church, do you hear me on that? We tend to think it works the other way around. Only the strong, only the wise, only the ones who have their lives put together are useful to God. But God delights to use the weak, the broken, the runners, the failures, all for His purposes. As this is throughout the entire story. This is how it was for Jesus himself, God's messenger to the whole world. He's literally the word, right? God's message to the whole world. But how did he come? Not in power, but in weakness, humility. Although he's God, he humbled himself and became nothing, right? To a manger and then to a cross. This is how it was for the Apostle Paul. God's messenger to the Gentiles, who once wrote, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the Jonah principle. It's actually people who are in touch with their brokenness and their weakness are actually useful to God. 
Even Jonah, even though he finally obeys and it goes to Nineveh, if you know the story, you're going to see later that he's still not changed. And God still uses him. I don't know about you, this is a tremendous encouragement to me. He uses even heartless obedience of a prophet who's just going through the motions and he turns the city upside down. So let me ask you, do you ever feel like your failures or your brokenness or your weakness has disqualified you for service to God? Brothers and sisters, think again. That's not how God's kingdom works. You are the exact person that God wants to know his grace in the core of your being so that you can become a vehicle of that grace to the world around you. Brothers and sisters, God will not stop. He didn't with Jonah. He will not with you. He will not with this church until we take up this mission of compassion. Weak and sinful as we are, yes, but we go and he uses us for his own glory. Early in the service, we sang my favorite hymn verse ever. It's in the song, Come Ye Sinners, by Joseph Hart. He says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's it. You feel your need, you're qualified for service to God. And maybe like me, when I look back over my life, my ministry... It's actually the times when I felt the most strong, the most sufficient, that were the most fruitless in my life. It was the times when I felt the most needy, the most weak, that God produced the most fruit. Because this is the Jonah principle. This is grace for a broken prophet. Secondly, I want you to see God's grace for a broken city, the city of Nineveh. See this in verses 2 and 3. God says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. This is the second time in the book of Jonah that Nineveh has been referred to as a great city. What does that mean? I think it means great in kind of a multi-layered meaning. Number one, it really is great in size. It's a large city for that time. Three days' journey just to walk across it. That's, that's a pretty large city. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's the hub for the entire region. It's the military center. It's the cultural center. It's the heart of life. And we learn in chapter 4 that there are more than 120,000 persons living in this great city. This is a large city by those standards. So it's great in size, but it's also great in sin. Right, in chapter 1, it says that this, the wickedness of the city has risen up before God. So this, this large city with all its people has become exceedingly evil. In fact, our text tells us that they've gotten so far off course. In chapter 4, it'll say the people don't know their right hand from their left. Just a way of saying they're completely lost. And when God instructs Jonah to call out against it, you know that word, where we've heard that word before in the Bible? It's the same word used for Sodom and Gomorrah. Friends, that's never good (laughs) for your city. So friends, it's great in size, it's great in sin. But you know what I think it also means? I think it means that it's great to God. That's actually literally what the translation is. It's a big city to God. It's an important city to him. For some reason, God has set his heart on this city, and it's a big deal to him. 
And this is why he's willing to go through all this and chase his prophet all the way to the other side of the world just to get his messenger to go to this great city that they might turn from their wicked ways. Right? It's, it's great in size, it's great in sin, but it's great to God. So what is God's strategy then to, gre- to reach this great city that he loves? <laughs> well, he sends a half-hearted prophet to stumble through the city streets for three days and preach this sermon. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You call that a sermon? Like, David and I couldn't have done that in a homiletics class. We were better than that back in the seminary days, right? That's not a sermon. That's the worst sermon ever. doesn't even say anything. Who's going to overthrow it? Why are they going to overthrow it? Is there anything we can do to avoid being overthrown? Right? It just sounds crazy. It's like if you saw a foreigner walking down Hebron Parkway shouting, 40 days and Carrollton will be overthrown, you would be concerned. It's a terrible sermon. It's a terrible strategy. (laughs) But guess what? God uses this weak sermon, this foolish strategy, to transform an entire city. Look what happens. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believe God. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Everybody repents. Everybody. And just in case you didn't understand everybody, the author tells you, verse 6, it went to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Everybody's fasting. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. As even the cows are repenting here. Wisconsin would be proud. (laughs) Our own. Because the author is going to great lengths to show you the immediate wholesale response of the Ninevites. Both man and beast, which is everything that walks the earth. Both herd and flock, which is every kind of animal, both small and large. In other words, absolutely everybody, everywhere participates in this fast, in these acts of repentance. What in the world is going on here? Friends, I'll tell you what's going on. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. For it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God uses this weak prophet and this weak strategy and this weak sermon and the whole city is turned upside down. Through the folly of what we preach, God saves those who believe. Brothers and sisters, this is nothing other than the power of the gospel. This is the force of God's grace. His relentless mercy to pursue after a big, broken city, and they respond with deep and real repentance. This is God's grace for a broken city. My question for you is this. Where have you given up on the power of the gospel? Where do you doubt it? Is there a part of your life where you've given up on the power of the gospel? Where you've just resigned yourself over to sin? 
and just said, this is just the way it's going to be. I'll never see any change here. Is there a person, is there a group of people that you have given up on because you can't see any possibility of real change? What about a city or a country? Maybe our own. I live in a city that's renowned for its secularism, for its post-Christian ways, and it seems like that's kind of spreading all over our country. Have you given up on the power of the gospel for our cities? Because perhaps, perhaps our cities may be great to God as well. Maybe they're great in sin, but maybe they're great to God. Perhaps God has set his heart upon them as the objects of his great compassion. Perhaps God wants to send you his church, as the vehicle of his great compassion. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you how it will happen. Through the folly of what we preach. Through the folly of what we preach. Through weak people and weak strategies and weak sermons, you find the wisdom and the power of God to transform our cities. Jonah 3 is here to restore your hope in the power of the gospel. For yourself, for your neighbors, for the world. That we would never be ashamed of the gospel, for indeed it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Let me ask you, think about how is it that you came to faith in Jesus? I bet it wasn't through shiny things or clever things or cool things. For me, it was because I liked a girl in youth group. <laughs> And God used that foolishness to arrest my heart with his grace. I think if we went around and we told our stories, how you ended up in this room, I bet we could tell story after story of ordinary, weak things that should have never worked. And against all odds, yet there you encountered the power of the gospel. Another favorite hymn verse of mine, since all my illustrations are hymn verses today, I guess. This one from Martin Luther in A Mighty Fortress. It says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. What's the next one? One little word shall fell him. That's all it takes. One little word. Word. It's all it took for Nineveh. It's all it takes for you. All it takes for our world. That, my friends, is the power of the gospel. So, grace for a broken prophet, grace for a broken city. Finally, grace through a broken promise. Let's talk about this difficulty here. Verse 10 When God, God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That word relent literally means that he repented, that God changed his mind. He planned to bring disaster upon Nineveh. When he saw them repent, he changed his mind and relented. That's what the text says. And if you're a Christian, this should trouble you a little bit, because Numbers twenty three nineteen says, God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak? And then not act. Does he promise and not fulfill? So you might be asking, is this one of these contradictions in Scripture? Because no one wants a God that changes his mind. Because if God changes his mind about this, then what else could God change his mind about? 
Nobody wants to serve a God that seems a little inconsistent, promising some things and, and delivering, but then making other promises and changing his mind. So what do we do with this? And I think this is possibly the biggest example in this chapter of how far God is willing to go to demonstrate his compassion. Leave in border on heresy. <laughs> he will tiptoe on the line of a seeming contradiction. He, he changes his mind and he makes some of us uncomfortable. Well, to relieve our discomfort, I need to teach you three words that David and I learned from Dr. Richard Pratt in seminary as the key to understanding biblical prophecies. Those three words are intervening historical contingencies. <laughs> Talk to David about it after the service. Intervening historical contingencies. Brothers and sisters, all this means is this, is that built in into most prophecies is what God promises to do, into these prophecies about what God promises to do, are unspoken, intervening historical contingencies that could alter the outcomes. And all of this is worked out under the sovereignty of God. Actually, we use intervening, intervening historical contingencies every time we go to a wedding. Because a couple stands up there and they make, they make promises to each other until death do them part. What they don't say is, but what is assumed is, I will keep these vows unto death to you unless you are unfaithful to me, and then I might divorce you. And we don't say that because nobody wants to hear that, but that, that unfaithfulness is the intervening historical contingency. It's understood by all, but it's not spoken. Right, you with me? So when God promises to destroy Nineveh in 40 days, even though it is unspoken, it is understood that this will happen unless the people repent. Repentance is the intervening historical contingency. And this is evident by the way the people and the king respond. You see that? Even though Jonah says nothing about this in his terrible sermon, the people assume the contingency. Even the, verse 9, the king says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So, did God know what was going to happen? Yes. Did he know how they would respond? Yes. He is sovereign. But it's so amazing, so cool that God doesn't reveal himself as some sort of impersonal, determinist God. And he doesn't treat us as puppets. He is willing to enter into the story and interact with his people in personal ways. Like even though he wrote the story, God is willing to insert himself as a character in the story and respond to our responses. And when he saw how the Ninevites repented of their evil way, then God repented of the disaster that he said he would do. Brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with this. Notice what changes God's mind, so to speak. The thing that moves God's heart is repentance. Repentance. God loves repentance. Psalm fifty-one, seventeen: a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. He loves it. When he sees it, all his compassion is aroused, is aroused and he floods toward it. And he cannot stay away from the broken and contrite heart. As Jack Miller once wrote, the Lord cannot resist the broken heart which has experienced true repentance. He will not, he cannot stay away from repentant sinners. I have an addiction to popcorn. <laughs> I love it. 
Anytime I smell it, I, I have to have it, right? I cannot stay away. I know it's ridiculous to spend $8 at the movie theater, but I can't help myself. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, is it irreverent to say that repentance is like God's addiction? When he sees it, he cannot stay away. He cannot help but to draw near with grace to the repentant heart. He will change his mind about judgment. This is how far God is willing to go to show you his heart of compassion. Friends, if you are in Christ this morning, if you are resting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then he has already taken the threat of judgment for you. He has. He was overthrown. He took upon himself the disaster, the calamity, the judgment of sin. God has forever changed his mind about your judgment, and now there is therefore now no condemnation. But friend, if you were here this morning and you were outside of Christ, then that threat of judgment remains. It would be cruel to not be honest with you. But there is the greatest intervening historical contingency ever, and that's the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. Turn to him in repentance and faith. God will draw near with his great compassion, and your life will be turned over, but not for judgment. It will be turned over in salvation. Brothers and sisters, in this little chapter tucked away in the Old Testament, this these are the links God is willing to go to show you his compassionate heart. Grace for his broken prophet, grace for a broken city, even grace through a broken promise.